Second Peter. So excited about this. Second Peter. It's going to be so good. The thing with Second Peter is it's a little bit of a continuation from First Peter. Uh, we'll kind of get to some of that um, here in a moment. But if you think about it in the context of uh, history, First Peter was really written very quickly after, uh, er, very early on in the first century. And so there's this time where um, the Christian church is really starting to pick up momentum, pick up steam after, uh, you know, Christ's death and resurrection after his ascension, and the disciples go out to obey the Great Commission to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see little churches begin to pop up everywhere, and like First Peter, Second uh, Peter is a letter that is written to a group of churches. Second uh, Peter may be a little bit more broad, as we considered First Peter. First Peter was written to a very specific group of churches. It was a circular letter, which meant that it would be read by one church, and then a messenger would have taken it to the next church and would have been read there as well. And so uh, Peter, in that first letter, was writing to address uh, this group of people who were dealing with oppression, anxieties, um, hardship, persecution. They were experiencing some uh, some tension between the Christians and the people of the community, the society at large, was starting to begin uh, to be quite hostile to the Christians. And so Peter was writing there to encourage them, to bolster their faith. And, and now as we come to, to Second Peter, the, the movement has been going for quite a bit longer now, picking up steam. But along with this growth, along with this growth, we also have a greater rise in uh, false teachers. This is something that Peter will address as he makes his way. But as he uh, created this letter, this was written to uh, address some of the issues that he was encountering. And so before we jump into that, we just want to look briefly here at some of the introductory elements in verse 1 and verse 2. We open the letter with these words, Simeon Peter. Now, this is a bit different than what would have previously been used. In fact, this is really only the second time where we find these words together, Simeon Peter, as opposed to just Peter or Simon Peter. Uh, it's, there's a bit of a, of a um, difference here in the ways that these are that, that his first name is being described, uh, his name being primarily Simeon or Simon. If you recall, Jesus was the one who called him Peter after. Uh, he, he, Jesus was the one who gave him the name Peter, Cephas. Uh, he said that uh, you are Peter, for upon this rock I will build my church. This is really a name given to him uh, by Jesus, but this first portion, Simon or Simeon, uh, here is really his given first name. And so we find that the description here is uh, Simon or Simeon Peter, and this, from the outset, is said to be the author, the author of the book, the writer of this book, uh, the writer of this specific letter. And uh, throughout uh, church history, um, and, and especially more in modern scholarship, there is some debate. Did Peter actually write this book, or did he not write this book? You know, because there's some elements that uh, look a little bit different. Uh, there was a little bit of a debate. Um, now, there's much more debate. 
But the differences that we find between 1 Peter and 2 Peter, a lot of the things that people want to kind of hang their, uh, their argument on are things that they don't really hold weight when you consider that 1 Peter was written to address a very specific uh, very specific circumstance, a very specific circ- uh, situation, but then Second Peter is written to a totally bro- uh, a much broader group of people to address a much different situation, and I think we find enough similarities throughout uh, the books, especially uh, chapter three is very similar to uh, much of the writing in uh, First Peter, but overall we find that the historical Christian church affirmed that 2 Peter was, uh, in fact, genuine and was considered a part of the canon. Uh, This was, it was really kind of ratified into the canon of Scripture at many of the early church councils. And so we find here that, indeed, we will say that Simon Peter, or Simeon, is the author. Uh, He is called Simeon, as I said, once more. In Acts chapter 5, 15, Acts chapter 15, uh, this, uh, this word Simeon is called, uh, he is really uh, given to Peter by James. Simeon, uh, he's called, when he says, brothers, listen to me, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. Now, the, the, the reason that I point out the change in name, the difference there, uh, is really for two reasons. The first reason is uh, many, many uh, scholars believe that this is a mark of authenticity, that it isn't just trying to be congruent with all the other portions, but they say, like, this is really, like, Peter's actual, like, mark of how he wanted to describe himself here as Simeon as opposed to Simon. But more than that, what you find is that this is really just a translation difference. Simeon uh, is more rooted in the Palestinian verbiage that would have been used in that time, uh, whereas Simon is straight up Greek. And so this is really just a translation difference here. He's using a a, a different language uh, by which to describe himself. Uh, Some scholars believe that he uses this because he's writing to a group that has some history within that Palestinian area. And so uh, this could have been an attempt to anchor his relationship with them more deeply. Um, But as we move in, we find that he's the author, but he designates himself, he gives himself two titles. He says this, Simon Peter or Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he describes himself in these two ways, a servant and an apostle. Now, first, I want you to see this. He introduces these in a specific order, a servant and an apostle. Now, as we consider what it means to be an apostle, here, of course, we could look at uh, the idea of uh, apostleship as described at, from Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 or 14 as a, a gift of the Spirit. Um, many people believe that this idea of people who could be said to be modern-day apostles, what they really are um, are those who pioneer works. They go out. That's what it means to be an apostle, to be a sent one. You are kind of sent out for mission. And so uh, as we look at the modern-day church, those who would 
potentially claim to be apostles should be people who are acting as pioneers. They're pushing out into the front lines. They are the ones who are, who are going out to start new works, new churches. They're going out to forge new trails for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and so that would kind of be what we would use for the description of what a modern-day apostle would be. Uh, we don't have any uh, capital A apostles with the, the grand title that we th- would apply to Peter here. The capital A apostle we would use would be to describe Peter as one of the original 12 that Jesus uh, himself selected as his first followers. He chose 12 uh, disciples, 12 apostles, 12 people to follow him. As he made his way uh, early on in his ministry, uh, moving throughout the town, he selected 12 people uh, to be the first messengers, to be the first ones who he would train, who would watch him day by day. And those apostles were then commissioned to go out and make other disciples, to make other followers, not of themselves, but of Jesus. And this is how we end up today. The church continues today because the original 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, the followers of Jesus, they were faithful to their mission. They obeyed what Jesus told them to do. They went out and they proclaimed the truth of the gospel. They exalted Christ. They formed churches that were under the leadership of Jesus. And today we gather because they were faithful. And this is really what it means to be a Christian, to just be a faithful follower of Christ, to be a disciple, to become like Jesus. The disciples, Peter, Paul, they weren't interested in making mirror images of themselves. We were, they were interested in making people like Jesus. This is our job as Christians, not to be like those who we are under their leadership or under their authority. It's our job uh, to become like Jesus, not to become like those who are over us. If you're ever becoming too much like somebody who, who is over you, if, you know, if anybody in, in our church here is trying to become like me, it's like we're on, the wrong, we're on the wrong track. You don't want to be like me. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Jesus. That's our job. We all want to be near, know, enjoy Jesus because he's the only one that can satisfy us. He's the only one can, that can meet the deepest needs of our hearts. He's the only one that can comfort us in our trials, and our tribulations, when we are experiencing worry, anxiety, and fear. He's the only one that can do that. I can't do that. The things that I teach you about myself can't do that, but I can teach you about Jesus, who can meet your need, who can meet you where you are. And so, He says here that he's an apostle. He's claiming that he's one of these very first. He speaks with this authority. He's telling us that he writes with authority as one of the very first followers of Christ. And so although he has this authority, although he has this uh, title as being one of the very first followers of Jesus, as being one who knows Jesus, as being one who was given a specific name by Jesus, he leads not with his authority, but the way that Jesus led. With his commitment to service and to humility. Isn't that how our Lord came? He did not come born into this earth, you know, with trumpets and fanfare. 
but was born in humility. He came with no grand announcement. He didn't have the best of the best, but he entered into our world as a servant. As Jesus has served Peter, so has now Peter determined, I am a servant. I am going to be like Christ. As Jesus has served me, I will then be like Jesus. You see what happened here? Peter's a true disciple. He's learned the ways of Jesus. Jesus came to serve. Mark 10, 45 tells us, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Peter's committed. This is why he leads off with this idea of service. I've come as a servant. He's under the authority of Christ. He's under the lordship of Christ. He has no inherent authority of his own, but he is coming in humility. Friends, as we deal with circumstances and situations in our lives, this is the lesson that you will continually learn. What it means to be a servant what it means to be a servant in all circumstances, in all situations, to have the humility that Christ had, right? Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2. It's, the, it's this great section called the Christ hymn. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul breaks down, and he's, he's going through this theological argument. He's breaking down uh, this argument for the Philippian church, but then in the middle, he just all of a sudden, in chapter 2, he's just like, here's a song, boom, and he lays it down. From chapter 2, it's basically like 1 through 14. He, he says this. He did not consider himself, he did not consider himself or the things that he wanted, but he instead put aside his own authority. He put off the glory that would belong to him, all the things that he deserved rightfully. And then he came, the incarnation, he came in the likeness of, of man, so God becoming man, and then even beyond that, in the form of a servant. And, and Paul says here this, that Christians, we ought to have this same mind, the mind that was in Christ. We ought to have that same mind of service. Now, not only did Jesus come in the form of a servant, but he was obedient Philippians 2 tells us, even to death, and then it just leaves you hanging there for a moment, even a death on the cross, the most shameful of deaths. That would be like the, that would be like even kind of making it even more scandalous. They'd be like, Lord, I'll do anything for you. He's like, really? Even this? Even this? Jesus went all the way. He went to the most shameful death. He put off all the things that belonged to him that were rightfully his, that he rightfully deserved, but yet for our sakes, he became poor so that we might become rich. What this does is it puts us in an uncomfortable position, but a clear position that we're not entitled to anything. Because if Jesus was the one who ultimately deserved all things, who ultimately could have claimed that, like, oh, I shouldn't have to do this, but yet he did it, and we're his disciples, then we can't ever say, like, well, you know, I'm, like, really entitled to a better circumstance or a better situation than this. Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. He, he made it clear. 
Like, you shouldn't expect better things than, like, I got. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. It was pretty straightforward. Now, this doesn't mean that there uh, won't be moments of joy, encouragement, and satisfaction. It doesn't mean that life as a Christian is going to just be like horrible, a horrible mess and just everything, you hate everything all the time. Like, that's not what he's getting at. But Peter has learned that the way forward is service, to serve others. And the way that you make it through difficult situations is by humbling yourselves and not saying, I shouldn't have to deal with this. But by saying, like, Jesus went to the cross for me. So I can kind of, I can move through this. He can empower me. He can strengthen me in this circumstance, in this situation. And so Peter writes as a servant. He writes as an apostle. Now, as the early church has concluded that uh, Peter is the author of 2 Peter, has recognized this letter as part of the canon uh, from a historical and spiritual perspective, uh, this would put this as one of Peter's very last letters, if not his last, and so would date this kind of book just before his death, which we know came at the hands of Nero. Uh, and so this probably book was uh, written 66, 67 AD is what we're looking at. Um, shortly thereafter, he was martyred in Rome, and so he likely wrote this from Rome as well. And then we come to the address. Here's who it is written to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ written to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's what we get gathered from this. It's written to Christians, right? That's what we got, Christians. But if you move a little bit further into the book, in chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 1, he says this, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. So this is the second letter, so we can kind of gather that like the same group who read the first letter are probably going to uh, read this same as well, um, written to the same group of Christians as First Peter. However, uh, because Peter is a little bit more general in this, there is the thought that Peter also wrote this to a much larger group of churches, but his original group of churches was uh, kind of a part of this broader group as well, and so this is why he includes this term. And he calls this group of people Christians, of course. We saw here in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Wouldn't that be encouraging to hear? If you're like hearing that as like someone who's a servant and someone who's saying like an apostle, just like I don't know how many times in, in, in my past I have looked to those who have discipled me, those who I've sat in the pews and watched them preach and just been like blown away at how the Lord is using them and be like, holy smokes, like I'm never going to be like that. Like I'm never going to get there. Like I just don't think that will ever happen. But just to have them be like, yeah, like you're the same as me. <laughs> this, this is like what Peter's getting at here. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. What he says here is that there is no difference in faith. A faith of equal standing equal privileges. 
the recipients of this are described in terms of their faith in God. How can this be, right? How can we all have the same faith? How can we make this claim? Because clearly we see other people, and it seems like there is uh, a chasm of people who seem like they have great faith and people who seem like they have lesser faith or people who uh, are doesn't seem like they have the ability to, to operate in greater faith because of uh, some disadvantages that they may face or hardships that they may face or anxieties that they may have. How can Peter make this claim to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours? Well, two ways. First, he says this. This faith comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This faith comes not by the people, but by the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't look out across the people who are going to read this and be like, okay, well, like, yeah, some of you have, like, greater faith, and you guys can all have equal faith. He just says, you all have equal faith because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is necessary with, for salvation. It's a gift from God. But it can't be produced by, by man. It comes from God himself. But this saving faith, the source of this faith, we're told, is the righteousness of, of our God and Savior, two terms that are ascribed to Jesus, our God and Savior. Who Jesus is to us. And here's what I want you to get. This is how we have the same faith. If you don't take anything away from this morning, take this. Our faith is absolutely the same, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, regardless of your background, your history, regardless of what difficulties and hardships that you have faced, all of our faith can be the same. It can be the same because our faith is not the amount of belief that you have. Too often we equate faith with belief. Faith equals belief. That's not what the scriptures tell us. It tells us that it is hope that is unseen. But we use a different version of hope as Christians. We don't use it as like, I hope I have a donut later. Like there's a potential that I might not have a donut later. But the true idea of faith, the true idea of hope, is that there is a guaranteed promise that will come to fruition. There is something that is guaranteed, we just don't see it yet. And so faith is not this belief without evidence. It's not this belief blindly. But your faith can be strong because it's the object of faith that you are trusting in. Right? You can have faith in a lot of things. You can have faith that if you fill up your car with gas and the gas light comes on, you can have faith that you're going to make it to the next, uh, next gas station there before you run out. Like, 
that might be a, a version of faith, but that is going to be potentially a, uh, a weak exercise of faith, no matter who you are. We can all have that same faith because, like, you might just run out of gas. You might be stuck on the freeway. You can have faith that the building that you came in this morning isn't going to collapse. You enter in to the building, not testing each, each structural element at a time, like, is this going to hold? Is this good? You're entering in, kind of operating this on the basis of past actions, past successes. But the faith that we have is in Jesus. And so your faith can be strong, our faith can be equal, because Jesus has consistently, faithfully, never failed. And so your faith can be weak, but it doesn't matter if Jesus is strong. You might not believe very strongly, but your faith can be as strong as anybody else's when you put your trust in something that is strong. If you put your trust in something that is weak, then it's going to look as if you have weak faith. But if you put your trust in something that is unbreakable, unmovable, almighty God, the creator of all things, the lover of your soul, then you're going to be successful 100% of the time. 100% of the time. The real problem is this. Too often, we don't want to put our faith in Jesus. Too often, we don't want to do that. We start looking around at other things. We start grabbing at other things. We're like, okay, what else can I do? What else can I do to fix this situation? What else can I do to be in control? But really, when we exercise that faith, we're trusting that Jesus is working, that he has a plan, that he is the one who's going to accomplish his work in our lives. Our faith can be strong. Our faith can be equal because Jesus is strong. We know we can't depend on, you know, the structures of mankind. We know that we can't depend on the systems of mankind. They're going to fail you. They're going to break down. You're going to have to buy, you know, a new car at some point. You're going to have to buy, uh, you know, things that you just don't ever want to spend your money on. You're going to get, you know, unjust situations happening in your lives. But Jesus is always perfect, always good, always true, always just. And he never fails you. And so your faith can be equal because Jesus is strong. Your faith is based on, the strength of your faith is connected to the strength of the object in which you place your faith. And there's no stronger person than Jesus. No more faithful person than Jesus. He says that we have an equal standing in faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Peter gives us a little bit of the purpose of this letter. Uh, just a couple of verses down. Why is he writing a letter? We know who he's writing to, but we get some of the purposes here. Uh, just a couple of verses down in verse 12. He doesn't have much time to live, and he wants to ensure that his readers keep growing, that the church keeps moving on. And so in verse 12, we read this. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon 
as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you, will, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what Peter's saying is, look, look I, I know I don't got much time left. And I want you to continue growing. I want you to continue maturing. And so I'm writing these things down. I know you know the things to do. Do them. The Lord's made it clear to me. I ain't got much time left. I'm making sure that they're written down and circulated so that there's always a record of what you ought to do. He's concerned for the church. He's serving the church. He's an apostle of the church, a sent one. He's doing all the things that we ought to do as Christians, to watch out for each other, to always point people to Jesus. And so Peter writes, firstly, to leave this record. Secondly, he writes uh, authoritatively to this church, which is facing false teachers. He knows that this could prevent growth, that could cause hardships. And particularly, the false teaching that comes about is this. The false teaching comes about is this group of leaders who are saying, it's okay to live any way that you want, to do whatever you want, at any time that you want, because we can clearly see that Jesus is not ruling and reigning, and he's not going to come back for his church. He, he's, he, his return is not near. So because of that, why don't you just go ahead and do whatever you want? This is uh, the, really the idea, the topic that Peter is trying to uh, combat. And so he writes, lastly, to say that the return of the Lord is certain, that it is promised, that it is true, that we don't need to uh, act as if it's not. There are those in the congregation who are beginning to lose faith. They're hearing these other uh, lies from the false teachers. And yet, Peter wrote to encourage, to strengthen this idea that Jesus himself said that he would return again for his people. And so as, he, as we make our way through the book, we look at um, several, several topics. And in chapter one, we just look briefly at the facts of Jesus's life in a, in a really two-verse, like, here's what you need to know way. Uh, as you move into chapter two, we look at Christian faith as the idea, the, the foundation of truth. Christian maturity and growth. Uh, and then, of course, in chapter 3, we look at the certainty of the return of Christ and how we ought to prepare for the return of Christ. And lastly, Peter finishes his introductory note in verse 2. He says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, Peter deviates a little bit from the, the usual greetings that would uh, be given uh, in this time. And he says this to the church. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I think as we hear those things like grace, peace, sounds good. But too often, we want to say, well, I'm going to go see how I can get those things. Peace seems great. Right? And we see that we have a whole culture, a whole society that, like, really wants peace. That really wants to pursue these things. Peace with man. Inner peace. They want this calmness, this quietness of soul, as we talked about last week in Psalm 131. The demand for it is there. We want it. We know that we need it. But what Peter says 
is that this can only come in the knowledge of God in Jesus our Lord. This can only come in the knowledge of God in Jesus our Lord. You can only have the peace of God when you've known the grace of God. What is that grace? That you don't deserve to know God. You don't deserve it because we're broken. We're sinful. But the idea of the gospel is that God's grace was given to us and that while we were against him, while we were opposed to him, while we were his enemies, he gave his life for us so that we might know him. He shed his blood so that we, we might enjoy him. Even though we didn't deserve it, he welcomed us. Even though we didn't have anything good to offer him, that's not what he was after. He wanted us to be in deep relationship with him. And it's when we have that relationship, when we know the grace of God, then the peace of God floods into our heart. Right? Because what are the things that make us feel anxiety and worry? What are those things that make us, uh, that put us in a position where things feel restless? Well, conflict, which is usually brought about by, you know, trying to, that we, that we haven't met other people's expectations, that there is persecution or oppression, there's hardship, there's, you know, validating our, our experiences or our lives, validating our, our uh, existence, wanting to, to show the doubters that we could be who we said we would be and who they said we couldn't be trying to stick it to them and be like, watch this. You don't think I can do it? Watch. These are the things that cause unrest, that cause anxiety, that cause fear in our souls. And what happens is we end up focusing on trying to defeat those people. And in doing so, we're created idols. We're enslaved to serving those other people. Because what happens is, even if you show them, they're never satisfied. I was like, so what? But the truth of the gospel is, is that Jesus knew that you couldn't satisfy him, but that you are so loved, so radically cared for, so, uh, so precious to him that he gave his life for you, knowing full well that like, you're just basically going to blow it and you're never going to be good enough. And that no matter how hard you try, there's not really like anything that you can do to satisfy him. He knows full well all the things that you've done and all the things that you will do and yet says, of course, of course I want you to be a part of my family. Of course I love you. Of course I want you to be, be near to me. That is the grace of God. That we don't belong, but yet we're invited and accepted and adopted. That's what the scriptures tell us. And so we know this peace when we recognize we are already adopted, accepted. We're already loved more than we can know or comprehend. We already have that. And so what is there to be worried about? What is there to feel anxiety over if we know that we've already been accepted fully by him? Nothing to hide. Nothing to fear. The grace of God comes and instills the peace of God in our hearts. 
And it's multiplied, we're told, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So you come to this point where you experience the grace of God, and then you have the peace of God, but this is further multiplied. It's made bigger, it's made more of, when we have knowledge, not know about, but know personally, Jesus. When we come to him, when we spend time with him, we know more of his grace, we know more of his peace. When we spend time with him, we see how gracious he is. It's not just having a one-time interaction, but knowing that when we fall into sin and we repent, that he's just so gracious with us and being like, yeah, I've paid for that sin. Come near. And we're like, whoa, are you kidding me? How kind, how generous, how loving. I'm going to live for you, Lord. We go forward, and then we sin again, and we have to come in that knowledge to him again. And again, we experience his grace. Come close. I paid for that sin. My blood was shed so that you wouldn't have to be far from me. And again and again and again, as you move through life, you experience the grace and peace of God and is multiplied as you are in relationship with God. That's the key, relationship with God. And so, I encourage you this morning, know God. Don't know about Him. Don't go read a book. Don't get on Wikipedia, right? That's not the place to know God. Read your Bible and pray. Know him. Spend time sharing who you are, laying out through prayer all the areas in your life that you're just like, Lord, I'm worried about this and I have anxiety over this and I'm fearful over this and I'm broken up over this and I have hardship over this. Like, he already knows those things, so like, don't pretend like they're not there. Just, you might as well just say them. And then he can come and meet you where you are and give you peace. Minister to your soul. It's this Christ-focused, Christ-centered thinking that Peter calls us to. It enables us to remain in relationship with him And when we are in relationship with him, it gives us a deeper longing, a deeper expectation, a focus to look to that day when we will see him face to face. This is why Peter writes, know God, enjoy God, look for him to return. We long for that day where you see him face to face. Let's pray, we'll respond together. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness to us. You're so radical with your grace, with your peace, that you have laid down your life. You've given us a way to know you and enjoy you. And so, Lord, we want to take full advantage of that. We want to come with boldness to your throne of grace. This is why you, uh, Lord, you welcome us so that we can find refuge, we can find safety. And so, Lord, we ask that you would change us and transform us. We look to follow you. Lord, we need your 
We need your help. Lord, we know we can do nothing without you. And so, Lord, have your way. We love you. Amen.